Welcome to the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, Editor-in-Chief Nina Ramirez, Professor Richard Ivory, and J.T. Sai will be discussing the article titled, The Effect of Visual Uncertainty on Implicit Motor Adaptation. So let's get started. Thank you very much. And it's such an honor to talk today about your papers. Uh, and so welcome, Rich and J.T., as you go by J.T., I learned today. And so your paper really took my attention because I think it's an important issue in motor control, specifically, you know, how do you adapt to a changing environment? And I read your, your website and you mentioned one, which is the ultimate Frisbee in a windy situation, which of course is very, a Seattle problem. Another Seattle problem is, you know, going skiing and there's, the snow is every time different. And then sometimes you lose visual control because you're in a cloud. And uh, so I think you're addressing a very important question. But before we go to the actual study, why don't we go first to the fundamental question that you address in your question? What is sensory motor adaptation and why do you use the term motor adaptation rather than motor learning? Well, first of all, thanks for having us on this podcast. This is a, a first for us and, and sounds like a really a, a great venture and direction for the journal to go. So we appreciate that. Um, well, we use the word adaptation because we really want to specify kind of the boundary conditions of what the problem is that we're studying. I mean, our lab is interested, we call ourselves the Cognition and Action Lab, Cognac, and we're interested in, you know, human performance, all aspects of human performance. But really, I was attracted to this because I wanted to understand, you know, why are some people more coordinated than others? Or why am I particularly uncoordinated in, in various endeavors. But we also want to acknowledge, right? So there, the big question would be, you know, how do we acquire a skill like playing the piano or the ukulele, or as you said, going skiing. But there's also a very rich tradition talking about that, you know, acquiring a skill involves a number of different stages. There's sort of an early stage, you know, this is classic work of uh, Paul Fitz and Mike Posner, where they're talking about, you know, first you have to kind of define the problem and then you have to define the components of that. So if I'm playing tennis about the tossing the ball to serve and so forth, but much of motor learning also involves sort of a long extended period of automatizing that behavior and, and fine tuning it and giving it the flexibility so that, you know, the context might change a little bit. Uh, the snow conditions vary from day to day, or even the clothing that I'm wearing might be slightly heavier. And the motor system has to constantly stay in this very precise state of calibration. And the problem that, you know, and this comes a lot from our lab's interest in the function of the cerebellum, is this idea that the part of that motor skill system is about keeping the behavior or the system finely tuned and calibrated. And adaptation is really talking not so much about, you know, that big picture question about acquiring the skill itself, but it's about honing it in that gives it that really, that exper expertise and flexibility. Absolutely. You know, like I'm playing piano. And, you know, I'm going first through trying to learn it, but then, you know, become flexible. And I always admire, you know, these concert pianists that go from one stage to the other. Every piano is different. And, and yet, you know, they, they excel and it's so precise. So what do you see as the, the key features of sensory motor adaptation, in particular, error-based learning? What's, what's the focus of this? Well, so error-based learning it's kind of been recognized as a, a way, sometimes the term we use is like gradient descent, that I'm going to take the outcome of an action and we're going to have some sense or some feedback that's going to basically tell me 
how not only that I didn't do it correctly, but how was I off? Like if I'm reaching for a cup of coffee, maybe I missed slightly to the right. And error-based learning is saying, take that feedback and do some sort of adjustment so that the next time the likelihood is that you're going to make slightly less error. And so it's again, this very gradual process of trying to hone in on the correct answer, which you might contrast that with, um, oh, take your example that you said about uh, throwing a ball on a windy day. There, I might actually have to make kind of a conscious decision like, gee, the wind's blowing sharply from the left to the right. I'm gonna actually redirect my aim off to the left to compensate for that. You know, that's sort of a, a, an exploration, right? A, a large scale change, but error-based learning are these gradual incremental things that again, are gonna work to keep a system well calibrated. Just take a little bit of that error and adjust. You don't wanna correct for all of the error in one fell swoop, because of course, some of that error is just sort of random noise. You don't wanna be correcting for that. So that's sort of why this is sort of a gradual process that's gonna hone in on the correct answer. And we think that's a hallmark of much of what you're seeing in natural everyday behaviors as you adjust to these fluctuations in the environment. Thanks, Rich. And I, I think in your, your study, you focus on visuomotor adaptation. So, so how does error-based learning work in visuomotor adaptation? And in fact, also what determines the rate of learning in this paradigm? Yeah. Well, I let uh, JT uh, take that one. Yeah, yeah. So I like Rich's example of uh, throwing a ball in a windy day. So that's an example where you want the ball to get, go into the hoop, but the ball, for some reason, because of the wind, kind of went off and off, uh, you, you missed the basketball. So the error in this case, uh, we can define it as the difference between where the ball is and where the hoop is. So that's the error. But what determines your learning rate? Uh, based on previous studies, one idea is that you determine uh, how fast you learn based on how well you see the feedback. If you don't really see where the ball went, for example, you play basketball during the night, you can't really see where the ball missed, you might uh, reduce your learning rate because you just assume that you just saw something wrong, like you didn't really see the basketball miss. If you clearly see the basketball miss the hoop, then you would adjust your learning rate to make it faster. You would maybe quickly uh, adjust the way you, you throw the ball and then make it into the hoop. So this is the idea of we being being Bayesian learners, being able to weigh the likelihood of you know, your observation with your prior kind of motor command of throwing the ball into the hoop. So in essence, you might determine your learning rate based on how uncertain you see the feedback. And we wanted to assess this idea again in our study. Thanks, JT. And, and in fact, that brings us now to your study where you manipulated the quality of the visual feedback. Maybe can you... Uh, Comment on this, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So the, the way we did our experiment was uh, we used this very quirky task called the visual error clamp task. And you know, if anyone is interested, we would definitely invite you to the lab and we have an online version right now um, that we use. So this task is very quirky, but the instructions are very simple. You just have to reach to the target in you know, this room on, on a screen, but you don't really see where your hand is. The only thing you see is this visual cursor on the screen that moves off target. But you're told that this visual cursor has nothing to do with you. Just ignore it completely, reach just all the time, reach to the target. 
And we do this because we want to keep the motor command constant to the target. And we want to see how your motor system adapts or adjusts unconsciously. So you see this visual feedback that's moving off target and we manipulate the uncertainty of this feedback. If it's very certain, this cursor is just a dot on the screen that's moving very clearly off target at, for example, 30 degrees or three degrees. Um, if it's uncertain, we present like a cloud of dots. So like 30 dots on the screen with the center of this cloud being kind of at three or at 30. So in this way, we can factorize and manipulate both the size of the error. So like either a small error, like three degrees or a large error, like 30 degrees. And we can also manipulate the uncertainty of the error with a cursor being certain and then a cloud being uncertain. And we really built, used this manipulation based on previous studies by Burge and Wei. And Wei and Cording was actually published in JMP in the past. So yeah, so that, that, that was the experiment. And what you see is that people actually unconsciously drift. They start reaching over time more and more away from the target in the direction that's opposite to uh -huh. where the cursor is. So you start to drift yeah. off target. And when you ask people where their hand is, they would tell you they're near the target. So they have no awareness that they have adapted. And that's why we think we have isolated this implicit motor adaptation process. Interesting, Jay. So I think you mentioned already that this has been studied in the past. So maybe it would be good to know, you know, how that work and these previous results have influenced actually your current theories and hypothesis around sensory motor adaptation to give the reader or the listener a broader perspective to where your study sits. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think Rich can build on this as well. But one of the key findings in our lab before our study was that a lot of this motor adaptation process is a combination of implicit processes, like your motor systems just making subtle adjustments that you're not aware of. Uh, but at the same time, it's also composed of a conscious, volitional, and flexible process where simply when you throw a basketball and you want to adapt, you just say, I consciously want to aim somewhere different. And so in the past, uh, for example, Burge and other studies uh, that have asked the question of how uncertainty influences adaptation may have not isolated the implicit part of, of adaptation because in the past we, we really didn't know how to dissociate these processes. But using the quirky clamp task, we are able to isolate this more implicit process. That was the, what we focused on and uh, one of the things we followed up on based on previous work. Yeah, so so that was basically like your main motivation, correct? To revisit the problem or, or Rich, sorry, you wanted to say something else. No, no, I was, I was really actually uh, building on that idea is that uh, we developed the method, actually it was a, a grad, former graduate student in the lab, uh, Ryan Moorhead, developed the method maybe about, I don't know, five years ago, though I think in uh, Ryan fashion, he actually probably mentioned that he was thinking of this idea nine years ago, and it took him about four years ago to, to turn it into a, a real design there. But it was really this, you know, kind of, again, very counterintuitive method where you reach, you know, we know that it's very easy to fool the motor system to see some feedback that's correlated with your action. We immediately embody that, right? And that's what underlies all these studies that use kind of uh, um, lots of virtual displays. Very quickly, we can convince the body that this is a consequence of your actions. 
And here we tell people that the feedback has nothing to do, at least its spatial position has nothing to do with your action. And yet again, you know, we're fighting evolution here. The brain, and I think especially the cerebellum, it sees this temporal correlation between a movement of something on the screen and your action, and it links those two together. So having developed this method where we could basically force the system to respond as though it's an error, even though you know consciously that you're not responsible for that, it allows us to sort of, in a sense, isolate this sort of automatic recalibration process. And with that tool in hand, then we realized, oh, there's a number of different features, but we can go back and look at a number of different classic problems in the sensory motor adaptation world. Because remember, in, in most studies, like if you put on prism glasses that distort the world, as you adapt, you get better, okay? So you're adapting, you're reducing the error, but at the same time, you're also increasing the success. As you adapt, you suddenly make the error smaller, but your success gets better. You start to reach the target. But with this method, the error never goes away. Okay, no matter what you do, that error remains invariant over and over again. So we can then study not just the early stages of learning where error is large and changes, but we can actually look throughout the whole time course to win the person asymptotes, what happens in the face of a persistent error. So we can go back, ask questions such as, what's the difference in the response to a small error versus a big error? Does the system scale with the size of the error? Turns out it doesn't in a very straightforward way. Or as JT picked up on, we can go back and ask these classic questions about what does it mean to be operating in the face of uncertainty and test some of these models that have talked about, you know, how you weight different sensory cues. And I think, you know, the results of the study really pointed in a very different direction, surprising direction. So, so Rich, you know, you can have a good and a bad day. And do you see this or is your paradigm, see these individual variations from day to day or is it more stable to, you know, fluctuation like that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because in a typical task, like if we're doing this visual motor rotation and we perturb the world by 30 degrees, well, everyone's going to eventually recalibrate their system by some amount to get rid of all that air, right? But with this clamp method, you never get rid of the air. So wherever you asymptote is in a sense going to tell us something about individual differences. And it's actually quite amazing the range we see. Some people might show a calorie calibration that's five degrees. Others might go all the way out to 45 degrees. We first did the method. Since the air never goes away, we were afraid, you know, people would pull their arms out of their shoulder sockets because they'd keep changing. Uh, that doesn't happen. They actually asymptote at a fairly modest level, but there is a, a, a considerable range in there. And, and um, you know, we bring in any visitor to the lab, as, as JT said, uh, some of the luminaries of motor control, set them down in front of the screen. Half of them can guess what the manipulation's all about, and yet you can't turn it off. But you do see large individual differences. In, and at least with this method, we don't really see a good day, bad day for an individual. Actually, it's quite robust from one day to the next. So if you're a good adapter, you know, or, or a big adapter on day one, you're probably going to be a big adapter on day 10. Now, in truth, JT's run a lot of the people much more often than I have on the day-to-day -day studies here. So maybe he'll dispute that point about the reliability. I know we've looked at test, test, retest reliability in some samples over a few days, and it's, it's quite high, but what's your take on that, JT? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's quite reliable. As a related note, though, 
there are subtle changes that happen if I ask you to come back again and again and again and again. And that, that's actually a recent study um, from, our, from our lab from Guy Abraham. And what he found is for some reason um, that he's, uh, he has some speculations on that from day one to day two, even though you still remain as a high adapter within the group, but for some reason your upper bound of adaptation has decreased a little bit. So it's almost like most people, if I invite you day one, day two, day three, your adaptation level gradually goes down, but your ranking still stays largely the same um, within the group. Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, I should point that out. So when I, mean, I said we can revisit classic problems, one of the you know, classic phenomena in the memory world is called savings upon relearning, right? That if I've learned something and then somehow I forget it, you have to learn it over again. I learn it faster and it, that intuitively feels right, right? There's some memory trace that's still lingering in the brain and gives me a boost. And so again, here was a case where we could take this new method that really isolates you know, or allows us to partition between what's sort of happening in this automatic recalibration system and other experiments compare when we have the flexibility to use multiple learning processes and ask, you know, where's that savings come from? And, mm -hmm. you know, guys' results are this very counterintuitive, but very, it turns out to be widespread phenomenon in the literature that have been overlooked, showing that actually within the adaptation system, you become desensitized over time. It's an anti-savings effect where you're actually slower to learn the second time you re-experience something within this adaptation system. Overall, the system does show the savings, this benefit, but that benefit's all coming from more of the probably the strategic aspects, the non-error-based learning aspects of the system. And it becomes a great physiological question, you know, what is, what is causing this desensitization over time? That's so fascinating. I mean, it makes also kind of evolutionary sense, correct? There must be a huge pressure to learn a task better and better, but then you have to be still careful. Let's say you're, you're a free climber, you know, you, you have to get better, but you cannot get careless. So you have to still desensitize and, and be clear this is this is a dangerous situation so yeah i think it's evolutionary very very interesting question you know again it's safer but what guys really asking is the desensitization one idea would be that if i've experienced this error before maybe i shouldn't have corrected for all of it because you know maybe it's something different that i have to respond to on the other hand it may be about what's taking place between when I first experienced that, that situation and what I'm doing now. Maybe they're subject to some sort of interference between different learning contexts. And, and that's sort of the kinds of questions that we're, we're following up with on that front. Wonderful. Let's go back to your study. And could you maybe summarize your key results of your study, just to concrete, so we have as readers, you know, get yeah. a context. Completely. Yeah. So we used this error clamp paradigm and we manipulated the size of the error uh, with the error being small, like this cursor moving only three degrees off target and one other group getting kind of a large error, the cursor moving 30 degrees off target. And so there are a total of four groups because there was small error with cursor feedback, small error with cloud feedback, large error with cursor feedback, large error with cloud feedback. So it was a two by two design and four different groups. And to summarize, we predicted based on previous results that visual uncertainty 
would decrease the learning rate and decrease total learning for both small and large errors. Um, because in the, the, the standard model was your learning rate just decreases overall independent of the error size. What we found was that visual uncertainty only decreased the learning rate and the total learning when the error size was small. So only when this cursor was moving three degrees off target, the cloud had an effect. But when the, when the cloud or the cursor was moving 30 degrees off target, both groups uh, learned the same. So uncertainty did not have an effect when the error size was large. And so this, this result was contrary to the standard view of how uh, your learning rate just gets weakened by visual uncertainty overall and adds an additional constraint that visual uncertainty only seems to affect small errors. So basically you had a, a conceptual shift in, in how people think based on your results, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. we, we try to, uh, and then, you know, in experiment two as well, uh, we found something similar, but then we were wondering, how do we model this? Or how do we explain this result and extend uh, and add constraints to uh, the previous idea of optimal integration? So. Rich, I don't know if you want to cover the theoretical implication or do, do I want to? As you wish there, JT. Okay. Uh, I guess one idea is the idea that we were thinking at the time was called the mislocalization model. And that's the idea. It's quite simple. When the error is small and uncertain, so if you have a cloud, a lot of dots, when the center is only three degrees, when you reach, sometimes you might see the error on the opposite side Sometimes you might see the error in the same side. And so on every reach, the error is kind of jumping between signs, sometimes in the right side, sometimes in the left side. And as a result, on average, uncertainty might decrease your learning. But when you have a large error, no matter if you have a cloud or a dot, the error size you perceive is most likely always going to be on the same side. It could be sometimes small, sometimes large, sometimes small, sometimes large. But nonetheless, in past results, it seems like what Rich brought up earlier was that no matter the size of the error, once it gets very large, the motor system adapts the same amount. So when stuff is uncertain, when the error size is so large, your motor system almost doesn't really care how uncertain it is. It's just going to adapt the same amount. And I would say a good example of this might be like if you play basketball at night, and you miss egregiously towards one side, even though you saw the ball to be somewhat uncertain that you missed, your motor system might not really care and adapt the same amount because it knows that you missed regardless of how uncertain it is. Um, but whereas if you miss just a little bit at night, the likelihood of you seeing the ball missing on the other side, the wrong side, might be higher. And therefore, on average, you might adapt less um, when you play basketball at night, when you miss just a small amount. Yeah, let me um, uh, even expand on that more generally in the sense that, so classically, we've thought about, you know, you have an error and the system's deciding how much of that error do I correct for? So if it was a big error, I'm probably gonna correct, make more of a correction than if it's a small error. If I'm really confident that I know this is an error, the system's gonna to respond to it more strongly. And uh, some of our work's really been suggesting that we should think about 
these manipulations of error in a different way, that the limitation on the system might not be how much of the error it's responding to. And actually our, the formal models usually have a term that say, what percentage of the error do you correct for? Rather than thinking about that, the limitations are reflecting something about how I treat the error, how much I weight the error. It's actually more about limitations on the motor output sign, right? Because you're recalibrating that mapping between you know, the input, the perceptual motor maps there. And there's probably, and it makes, I think to me, it feels physiologically more sound to think that there's limitations about how much can I tweak that system over this very short term, right? What kind of short-term plasticity am I capable of? And so when you think about it that way, then the idea that maybe I respond the same way to a large range of errors isn't because I'm treating the errors differently, it's that I'm basically reaching the upper bound on how much I can retune the motor system from one moment to the next. There's probably some fundamental limits about how quickly I can change those sensory motor maps. So our focus has really been to think about that that system is taking the error information and not so much deciding how strong is the error, but deciding what kind of error. As JAT said, maybe it's on the right or maybe it's on the left. That's gonna force me to adapt one way or the other. But then the real change we observe are reflecting constraints associated with the updating of that sensory motor map. So now, Rich, you talk about the motor map. So what's the neuroscience behind it? And, and for example, the interaction with the cerebellum versus the motor map and where is the motor map? And could you yeah. elaborate on this? Well, I, I wish I could in a sensible way. <laughs> some speculations here. So, um, and of course, this is going to vary across different task domains. Our interest has been very much in the cerebellum. I mean, clearly a critical circuit uh, for sensory motor adaptation, you know, just a huge literature involving both animal models and, and human uh, uh, neuropsychology showing that individuals with cerebellar degeneration or cerebellar pathology have great difficulty here. A lot of that work's been asking, you know, how is the cerebellum doing? Is it housing the new sensory motor map or is it actually involved in making, generating something about the air information and, and so forth? And of course, you know, going way back, classic work of Ito and, um, and then theoretical work of Mar and Albus has pointed to models about how the cerebellum, you know, generates these interesting error signals. Okay, so we certainly think that it's involved in processing the errors much of the theoretical implications has said that we should think about the cerebellum perhaps not so much as a motor structure, but really making predictions of what the sensory expectancies are, that it's taking kind of a efference copy of the motor command and then generating the expectancy of what's the sensory events that I should get if this motor command is executed properly. And using again, the mismatch between the expectation and the actual feedback to make the changes there. Now, in terms of our study in particular, right? So JT pointed out that the classic view of uncertainty is to say that you have more, you give more weight to an error signal when you're certain about it than when you're uncertain about it. So if I went in there and recorded those cerebellar error signals, like those complex spikes that have been, you know, beautifully described for, what, 50 years or so now, then we might expect that if I did those recordings, if I put you in the situation of high uncertainty versus low uncertainty, I might see some change in the complex spike activity and the climbing fiber activity. 
Now, those things don't, those events, those spikes don't happen with high frequency, but I might expect to see a greater probability of us, of one of these spikes being elicited in the high, the low uncertainty condition compared to the high uncertainty condition. So that'd be the classic view. This new idea that, that, that we put forth in the paper is that actually the reason you get that reduction in adaptation in the low uncertainty case for the small errors is because of this misperception idea. Well, now some beautiful recent works by David Hertzfeld and Reza Shadmir has sort of shown that these complex spikes in a sense of so the Purkinje cell tuning to the complex spikes are tuned to the direction of an error. Right, the likelihood of getting one of these complex spikes depends on the direction of an error. So we actually now, I think our behavioral results are making a very strong prediction that the neurophysiologist can go in and test. And that would be that uncertainty isn't gonna change the probability of observing complex spikes, but it's actually gonna change which populations fire because on some trials, that error is being signaled as coming from the wrong side than on other trials because of this misperception. You know, again, it's a beautiful case here where cognitively the person knows the error is always off to one side, but we're saying the cerebellum doesn't have access to that cognition. It just has sort of a sample of this current trial. It makes a point estimate of where that error is or some system does, and then it generates an error appropriately there. So actually this behavioral study, I think makes a very clear testable uh, prediction that I hope some neurophysiologist comes along and decides to test. And, a way to test the sort of classic Q combination or Bayesian weighting model versus kind of this misperception idea that we feel provides a good fit to the data observed in our study. Rich, this is really exactly the idea, you know, like that we inspire an interaction between the psychology or the, the behavioral experiments and the neuroscience. And, and yeah, I will, will have Reza solve it or, or someone. Yes, perfect. And I, I, I got to take one second here to plug your journal because ah, rich uh, anytime. Well, I mean, you call the journal of neurophysiology. It's a common discussion point to tell you the truth among mm -hmm. those of us in the computational motor control world. And that is uh, there is no, there's a few journals, but there aren't, you know, real flagship journals for publishing behavioral studies in the motor control world. And you know, many, there are journals that have sort of said, you know, unless you have a really direct neural result, we don't want to look at that work. And the Journal of Neurophysiology, and to some extent, though it's been a debate within the staff editorial, you know, staff of the Journal of Neuroscience have started to shy away from purely behavioral work if it doesn't have, that study itself doesn't have a neural link to it. But the Journal of Neurophysiology has been such a breath of fresh air for the computational motor control world because it's a place that has historically and continues to sort of support behavioral studies that of course we think, you know, we like to be thinking all the time about what are the neural implications, what are the biological constraints and so forth. But we do think that behavior can be of great value for thinking about neuroscience problems. Now, Rich, you're touching something that is so important to us. And this is really the computational approaches to neuroscience. And as you say, I mean, this is, is not only for motor control, but also for other areas of neuroscience. I mean, computational approaches are so key, you know, to, to conceptualize your problem. Because if, if you go into the experiment, often you forget the concept. So, so now we appreciate not only we appreciate, but we really want to strengthen uh, computational sciences in, in our journal. And so your study is totally spot on to what we're looking for. So, so now, 
we talked about cerebellum and um, in the context of your paradigm, which was mainly centered around vision. So what about proprioception? I'm, I'm sure that probably that gets also multimodal involved in this. Can you talk about this? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a stab at this because um, also recently in JMP2, Rich and I and others have a paper that talks about proprioceptive uncertainty and how it relates to adaptation. So we talked about this error clamp paradigm about how you take in this visual feedback and then you start to drift, you start to move in the direction opposite from this error around 20 to 30 degrees. And on average, people kind of hit this upper bound of 20 to 30 degrees. And Rich said, why don't we pull our shoulder sockets out? For some reason, we just stay at this 20 to 30 degree mark. And the question is why? And one possibility is that you just start feeling that you're, you start, you, you weigh how much you want to learn from this visual feedback. And then you start to sense kind of where your hand is somewhere that's going in the opposite direction of the feedback. And you start to weigh the two signals based on their relative uncertainties. And the point when you stop this 20, 30 degree mark is when uh, the weight of the visual feedback cancels out the weight of the proprioceptive feedback. So in essence, you have these two signals and this 20 to 30 degree upper bound is kind of when these two signals reach an equilibrium. So that that's uh, one notion that kind of builds on our study uh, to bring in kind of how proprioception uh, might play a role. And so uh, in other words, in with someone without proprioception or very uncertain uh, proprioceptive input, they might adapt a lot. They would be the mm -hmm. high adapters and adapt maybe to 60 degrees. We call them the super clampers because they adapt so much. So that, that's been one avenue we've been pursuing. Yeah, and I can imagine that it's not fixed, correct? The ratio, let's say uh, if you want to learn a piece on the piano, then you probably need a lot of visual contacts. You know, where do I put my fingers at what time? And then after a while, you become much more proprioceptive driven or a skier, you know, like, as I said, I mean, a good skier doesn't care if it's snowing or not. They can rely on their proprioception, but it's probably not coming easy, which a little bit gets me to, to another question, which is the development, you know, I mean, you have to learn a lot of the motor task as a kid to be really perfect. So how does this control system now evolves during ontogeny? Do you have to start early in order to be able later on to be a good, let's say, basketball player, for example? I don't know. It depends how seriously you take uh, Malcolm Gladwell and the folks who have studied skill development and, you know, advocate for things like the 10,000 hour practice rule. Erickson has studied this psychologically and said that, you know, it's good to start early, but it's because you get to practice early. <laughs> not, not so much about the critical <laughs> period, but, you know, you get a head start. And once you have a head start, and if you stay committed to that, it's very hard for someone else to catch up with you. I mean, uh, that's one view. I, I think there clearly are critical periods and, you know, changes in terms of the flexibility of the system over time. Uh, on the other hand, remember, we're talking, you know, the main point that we keep trying to emphasize is that there's always multiple learning systems. There's no one thing called the sensory motor learning system. It's a compilation or composite of many different processes, right? And so, you know, again, we're trying to develop these behavioral tools that can separate things. We might 
test them with patient populations to link them with neural systems there. But now again, it opens up the question, is the adaptation system subject to the same developmental constraints as say the more flexible parts, the things that are essential for our brain to acquire more complex skills? And some recent work has suggested uh, um, uh, Charlotte Stagg's lab in Oxford that actually, you know, um, you might actually even see an improvement in adaptation or a heightened sensitivity in an adaptation system as you actually in, in an older population. So it may be a very different time course. It may be that this is a system that's actually getting better at better recalibrating from birth through, you know, how, I don't know how late you go, you know, 80, 90 or something like that. <laughs> Whereas it's other aspects of, you know, the, the skill acquisition system, the thing that gives you flexibility or the ability to look for novel patterns. Those are the things that might atrophy as we get older and become less flexible and, you know, just more rigid in the way we look at the world or respond to the world. Absolutely. And I think it, this gets it back to the neuroscience behind this, because as you say, it's, it's not just one area. It's not just the cerebellum. I mean, you, you have probably your amygdala that if you're a, a young kid, they are not scared at all, you know, going down a, a, a double, triple black diamond ski slope, you know, and uh, or if you, if you see these young pianists, I mean, they're not scared of anything. And whereas an old guy like me, you know, like he just impossible and it's impeding my motor adaptation quite dramatically so yeah i think it's it's really important to think that the neuroscience behind it is highly complex and but the more important it is to have these behavioral experiments to to you know conceptualize exactly what you want to test so quick question now i think you addressed it already what are the pr practical implications of this study and uh, you talked about basketball and sports etc and um, but also maybe what are the neurological implications of your study yeah, so uh, to answer this question, I'll, I'll kind of address the previous question as well, because one reason I think that there have been studies, and Rich brought up one, and there's also JJ has a study about how age affects motor learning. And one, one reason there might be a lack of these studies is because it's hard to recruit a lot of people uh, in your study, and you need a lot of people in each age group, and you need to compare, uh, you know, unconfound kind of ovariates that occur with aging. And one thing we're really excited about in our lab is how we're bringing motor learning to an online platform. So we can actually invite anyone, you can send them a link and do our online studies. And so in this way, we can actually tackle the question you posed about how age, even in development, uh, affect motor learning because we have a continuous measure of age. And related to that, we've been doing studies uh, and this relates to practical implications because we've been doing these online studies with patients with neurological disorders who are typically, especially during COVID, um, difficult to work with if they uh, have, if we all had difficulty like with logistically, pretty much it's hard to go into lab. So in that way, we, we invite people to do our task uh, online. And one of these groups is with individuals with low vision. So after our study, uh, with visual uncertainty uh, in the lab, we were wondering if the same principles, this constraints of how uncertainty only affects small errors applies to populations with low vision, for instance, macular degeneration, uh, for instance, other like even more central disorders like optic chiasm kind of tumor pressing on your optic chiasm even that creates in general low vision, just difficulty seeing your environment. Um, so we can ask this question of, of 
in a more causal way, in a way that we can ask, oh, what neural substrates uh, in the visual system might affect how you adapt? Um, so that's an ongoing study. Um, and I don't, we don't have any conclusive evidence yet, but that is one practical implication um, of our study. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, of course it is of value at the practical level, but it also is kind of gets at an interesting theoretical contrast because right in JT's experiment, he's manipulating the reliability of information out in the world, but the low vision people, now we're talking about uncertainty kind of that's intrinsic to the individuals. And so is there a difference in the way that the brain responds to uncertainty in the world versus uncertainty within my own, my own neural nervous system there? And it, it may treat those things in very different ways. So I think that study actually has interesting practical implications about some of the problems, you know, like with these people with low vision question is, you know, why do they have difficulty at these learning sensory motor learning studies? Is it all about the perceptual system or are there changes in the motor system too? And also for these theoretical kinds of questions like about you know, how you attribute the error and how much weight you give it depending on what source you attribute it to. Yeah, and just to add on to that, um, and this Nino made me think of this, um, is that you said Seattle has a lot of clouds. And I was just thinking how <laughs> um, pilots, when they learn how to navigate their planes, I imagine that they fly through clouds. And I imagine like their visual optic flow might provide some feedback about whether they're steering this plane correctly. So I wonder, you know, if someone did a study with like pilots to see, you know, how, how flying through clouds versus in, in like a foggy environment versus in an environment where there's like complete a clear scene, how they would learn from the errors they make in how they navigate the plane. Um, so that, that's the one question. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, when that's and I can imagine. Like, I mean, like also same, not only pilots, but let's say you're you're driving uh, your car, your own car, and it's like you're you're wide out suddenly, and and how do you carefully measure where you go and the speed, etc. Yeah, it's very important questions. Now, now, Rich, quickly, can you talk a little bit? Like uh, JT talked about our lab. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your team involved in the study? You know, like how how did you get to JT? And yeah, so um. Well, like I said, we, we call ourselves Cognac for Cognition and Action. I actually uh, trained as a cognitive psychologist, um, but I happen to be very fortunately positioned up at the University of Oregon at the onset of the uh, cognitive neuroscience revolution. And so I've been able to ride that wave for quite a while. Um, our lab, but because of the, this, again, this interface of, of cognition and action, right? I mean, obviously, clear to, to the readers of the journal that, you know, when you have a motor skill, it's not all about changes in the muscles. That's not what separates the expert from the novice, but it's really what's happening in the brain, right? And so, of course, our overriding questions are about how does the brain produce skilled behavior? How does it actually, you know, not even skilled behavior, make simple choices? Because, of course, you know, as, as Daniel Wolpert's emphasized over and over again, we evolved brains so that we could interact in the world. And so we're interested in how you do that efficiently. So, um, you know, a, a great thing about being at Berkeley is, you know, a lot of people like to come live in the Bay Area and so forth. And so uh, we do get students from from around the world. And uh, uh, JT comes from Chicago there. He was he was rather 
extraordinary that he, he spent quite a bit of time investigating where he thought he'd be well matched because uh, JT actually has already had completed one doctorate in, in, in physical therapy, but then he, in the process of his clinical practicums, he, he realized that he also had an interest in kind of these basic research questions and decided to go back and, 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 and do a PhD. But he, he keeps the lab uh, oriented to the idea that it will be nice to be able to translate some of these findings into real applications and so forth. So the, so the lab in general has been a mixture. Uh, we sometimes get engineers coming to join us, which is great for me since I'm not really a computational neuroscientist, but it's been a nice place where we get psychologists interested, engineers, people with physical therapy backgrounds. It's proven to be a really fruitful way to, uh, um, to kind of look at a problem like coordination from many different perspectives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now it makes sense, JT, that you, <laughs> you talk about basketball, you know, you're coming from Chicago, of course. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I'll just add on to what Rich said, because I was pretty, after, during my physical therapy degree, I was pretty set on, I wanted to do science because I wanted to first understand the brain before we can uh, quote unquote fix it or rehab it. But one, I was pretty goal oriented and I found, found rich and the lab was a great fit. What I didn't realize at the time and appreciate was, and kind of relates to this study was how not goal oriented I was in pursuing this question, how some of the our curiosities, collective curiosities, helped us stumble into this question, which led to subsequent studies on proprioception and now kind of more ideas around uncertainty and how it affects the way we move. I couldn't have planned it. And I think part of it is, I mean, the majority of it is really rich, fosters this environment where it kind of makes you feel like you're in this sandbox, this playground of uh, science and lets you freely explore the questions that interest you. And I think that's super valuable. And I, in the future, if I do open my own lab, I think that's the type of environment I want to foster myself. JT, I mean, you touched something what drives all scientists. I mean, it's so wonderful. I mean, we never run out of questions. We never solve a problem, really, because we raise more questions than we, we solve. But And also, I mean, the biggest fun of, of, of being a scientist is work with intelligent kids that come to the lab and and inspire us and and they bring all their different enthusiasm different uh, you know expertise so so i can tell from this lab you you got it and uh, and i wish you also good luck with your lab and uh, i think you're you're soon ready for that so so rich what what are, and 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 jt what are the next steps from here you know where do you go well as jt you know touched upon he's there's that practical direction actually with some people in our um, vision science program that he's teamed up with to look at this uh, low vision case. But I think in, in general, you know, uh, we still continue to be, you know, very interested in this notion about multiple learning systems. We've kind of been hammering away at this adaptation system, but of course we'd like to broaden the picture here and think not just about uh, one component of what goes into forming skilled behavior, but look at it more broadly. And um, I personally am very excited about taking the ideas we think about in terms of cerebellar contributions to adaptation and thinking about broader implications because of this ongoing sort of churning rebellion about pushing the world to take a broader perspective on cerebellar function and understand how it contributes to things like attention and cognition more generally. Uh, so a host of directions, JT right now, he's, he's gone into a, uh, almost like a cave and digging through the literature because he really wants to bring proprioception 
into the center of the picture there. And, and uh, I, I don't want to uh, give away the, the punchline here, but uh, I know the paper that we've been talking about today came out, what, about four months ago? And he's already kind of working on a theory that's going to basically, I think, in the end, has a good chance of saying this misperception idea is wrong and he's going to come up with a whole different model. I've seen the first stages of it, uh, of another model that's going to basically bring proprioception into the picture here and offer a picture, now, a retake on this study, but I think actually, you know, integrating a number of different things across the literature. So, so you know, both I hope big picture. Yeah, I hope this this uh, will be submitted to JNP and and also JT. Then uh, maybe it's time to write the review about it. I think it's uh, great to bring everything together. So as we now are wrapping up soon. So what are the important take home messages you want to listeners to remember about your study? So, yeah, so um. One, even simple tasks like our classic studies of sensory motor adaptation involve the engagement of multiple learning processes. There's no single motor learning thing that we have to really think about its different components. It clearly involves the integration of information from probably different modalities. But we're always thinking about, you know, when we're using error-based learning What are the constraints on the system? Is it about how much weight we give the air? How do we respond to the air? Or are the changes in how we use that air information to modify the motor system? And basically, you know, this study is sort of asking us to use new tools to think about, you know, how do we conceptualize how the system operates? You know, in this particular case, the uncertainty of an air signal, but more generally, how do we characterize the constraints on the sensory motor learning system, speaking broadly? Wonderful. And JT, yeah. what is your take-home message? I think I would like to double down on what Rich said. One thing that taught me about this study and, you know, uh, taught me about this study, taught me about uh, how to do experiments in general is to dissociate processes in a clean and pure manner using tools that uh, and experimental manipulations that really isolate, factorize, and cleanly probe a certain process. And in this case, the factor that we wanted to probe was the error size and the uncertainty. And within a task that allows us to probe the implicit adaptation paradigm in a more pure way. And I think this theme would apply throughout my career and throughout like the experiments I do to be, uh, you know, use these simple ways to probe how the brain works. Perhaps in the future, I would use more naturalistic stimuli using more big data to like dissociate these processes. But as of now, maybe I'm a cognitive psychologist, which maybe you've kind of <laughs> made me well, into a cognitive psychologist. <laughs> maybe you should come to Seattle and we could do like a, a little ski trip or something to, to discuss how, how you coordinate and your errors are Definitely. processed yeah. while you go downhill. So... Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you and, and I hope to, to see your next study coming up at, at JNP and then we can go deeper into our discussion. So Rich and JT, thank you so much for participating here. Oh yeah, well, thank you for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Okay, all the very best. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.